Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist in London. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This episode is about cars. Specifically, trade in cars. Some people have been pretty upset about NAFTA sucking American jobs to Mexico. Here's Ross Perot back in 1993 warning that would happen. You can move your factory south of the border, pay a dollar an hour for labor, hire a young 25... That's assume you've been in business for a long time, you've got a mature workforce. Pay a dollar an hour for your labor, have no health care, that's the most expensive single element making a car, have no environmental controls, no pollution controls, and no retirement, and you don't care about anything but making money, there will be a giant sucking sound going south. So we, if, if the people send me to Washington, the first thing I'll do is study that 2,000-page agreement and make sure it's a two-way street. People blame trade deals for a lot of things. In this episode, we're going to talk about all the things that influence trade. It turns out where cars get made is not entirely under trade negotiators' control. So I guess the first question is why we should care about trade in cars at all. Part of the answer is that although America used to make all of its own cars, a car really isn't made in just one country anymore. Now there are regional and global supply chains. Today, a little over half of cars sold in America are still assembled in America. And thousands of parts that are included in those cars come from all over the place. So a car might include electronics from Asia, axles from Mexico, steel from who knows where. And even cars that the U.S. imports have a ton of American components in them. Cars are also important for a couple of other reasons. Number one, they're really, really important within the NAFTA. Trade in cars, trucks, and car parts make up around a quarter of America's two-way trade with Canada and Mexico. And the second reason, and most importantly for politicians, car production is a big, big employer. So it's about 0.5% of the labor force in the U.S. and Canada and 1% of the labor force in Mexico. That's more than 700,000 people each in Mexico and the U.S. producing these things. It's probably also worth saying that when people think of the car industry, people think of people assembling the cars. But actually, most of the jobs in this sector are in making the parts that go into the car you tend to get these big production clusters where you have this assembly plant, but then you have thousands and thousands of other people all working to make the parts that go into it. You get these clusters with a hub and then lots of little spokes going out where everyone is supplying that one hub. And the way that the industry is set up means that one plant closure can have a massive, massive effect. So a whole community might be hit. And if one car company goes under, like, say, if GM had failed in 2008, it would have brought a lot of people and a lot of communities down with it. Okay, so we care about cars. Cars are important. People want the cars. They want the car jobs. But... Annoyingly, for policymakers, there are a lot of factors that go into where these jobs happen, where these cars are made. So one thing is Americans on average are richer than Mexicans. So it figures that they would both buy more cars and, and probably also the pricier versions of cars, too. And second, for whatever reason, Americans tend to like trucks. Now, it doesn't seem like anybody else in the world likes them, but Americans love them. But what that also means is that the United States isn't likely to export a lot of these trucks to the rest of the world. So demand is really important. Also, what's going on with the economic cycle will influence demand and that will influence production. So in the past, some really, really big trade tensions have been driven by these big changes in demand. 
in the mid-1970s, for example, there were some really big oil shocks. The price of oil went up and the American gas guzzlers that everyone had been buying didn't look so sensible or economical. So petrol was really expensive and the Americans switched. They turned to smaller cars and it turns out the Japanese were pretty good at producing those smaller cars. Demand can also be affected by quality differences. In 1977, my parents bought an imported Japanese Subaru. At the time, Subaru was one of the few companies that made a front-wheel drive car. And we were living in New England, and in New England you have a lot of snow, and so you need these front-wheel drive cars to be able to get around. Over the decade of the 1970s, U.S. imports from Japan increased from 6% to 21% of the U.S. market. So what that meant was by 1980, one in five cars were actually imported from Japan. Changes in preferences or maybe tougher competition from abroad, those things can both influence you know, which cars get bought. But also it's important to say that generally the number of jobs in the car sector might be nothing to do with import competition at all. So during the recession at the beginning of the 1980s, interest rates were really high. Americans didn't want to buy any cars. Borrowing was just too expensive. Back then, employment in the auto sector fell by a lot, several hundred thousand of people. And people blamed the Japanese. There were stories of only American and Canadian vehicles being allowed into the United Auto Workers parking lot. There were people burning the Japanese flag outside a GM plant. People invoking memories of Pearl Harbor to beat the Japanese competition. But there was other stuff going on too. And it could have even been more important. And aside from the economic cycle, production tends to go where it's cheap. A weak Mexican peso relative to the dollar is gonna make investment in Mexico look a lot more attractive. And if labor is cheap, say because maybe it's not unionized, you don't have to pay the pension costs or the healthcare costs of retirees, that may affect investment decisions too. And also shipping is expensive, and it's cheap to be nearer to your suppliers and nearer to the ones selling you those cheap parts. Yeah, and the fact remains that essentially the main block of car consumers in North America is in America. You want to be near the American consumer. I think there's this narrative out there that cheap labor has sucked production from America to Mexico. And it is true that labor costs are lower in Mexico. So the, the Center for Automotive Research calculated that labor costs are around $600 lower, which doesn't actually account for the fact that it costs $900 more to ship your car from Mexico to the US. So the labor costs on assembly aren't enough to offset the extra shipping costs. What is, is the fact that the parts are around $1,500 cheaper in Mexico than in the US. Although I guess the, the cheaper labor cost also contributes to the fact that those parts are cheaper as well. The other factor that, that we should mention is, is it matters how educated your workforce is. The CAR also finds that recent educational training initiatives in Mexico have made it an increasingly attractive place. So now, you know, all your, your trained engineers are located around these factories. They've got a fairly skilled workforce. It makes sense. But their study also shows that along other dimensions, the United States is actually a bit better. So they find that the United States has lower utility or energy costs better access to a lot of the important advanced materials like specialty steel that you need. Yeah, I think, you know, the headline here is that context is important. Trade deals write the rules of the game. They say this is the level of tariffs or this is the, the rules that you have to fulfill to ship things tariff free. But this other stuff, demand, education, costs, your capital, that's really, really important as well. And trade deals, they can't influence everything. 
trade policy doesn't influence everything, but it can matter, and frequently not in a good way. So there's all sorts of ways that governments have tried to influence production of cars. So they've tried tariffs, quotas, trying to make it harder for imports to come in, supposedly to stimulate the domestic industry. Sometimes they've banned imported cars. Why not? There have also been trade deals and other programs designed to promote trade and actually opened up the auto industry in, during periods when it's been closed off. And in other times, they've tried to manage trade or persuade foreign exporters to send less stuff into their market. The big economic trade-offs going on here uh, between the benefits of the original policy in terms of stimulating your local industry and the unintended consequences of the policy. You could encourage local production and attract investment from foreign firms, but it could lead to cars that are just a bit rubbish or expensive or both. Yeah, my favorite unintended consequence of a trade limit on cars is from the 1980s when after all that anti-Japan sentiment, the US government negotiated what are called voluntary export restraints with the Japanese to limit car imports. So there basically the American government did a deal with the Japanese government and the Japanese car exporters voluntarily said, fine, you don't like our exports? Okay, we'll export you fewer cars. And so one of the consequences of that was it encouraged foreign direct investment into the United States market. So you had what were called transplants, companies like Nissan and Toyota, where they just decided to set up production facilities in the United States to bypass these trade restrictions. But the fixed limits on the number of cars that you could actually buy from Japan also encouraged these car companies to go up market. So if they can only sell so many cars, why not change what they're selling and just sell the pricier models? Yeah, I think as unintended consequences go, there being too much competition and innovation just isn't kind of top of my list. I'm guessing this thing also made cars more expensive for Americans? Yep. Yeah, okay, fine. I'm a little bit more concerned. All right. Well, my favorite story, if we're exchanging favorite unintended consequences, uh, comes from Mexico. I recently came across this fantastic paper by Thomas Clear of the Chicago Fed and James Rubenstein of Miami University. So they tell the story of Mexican car production right up to the present day in NAFTA. The paper opens with this line, Mexico has become one of the world's leading producers and exporters of motor vehicles, although it has no automakers of its own. Yeah, it's kind of amazing how Mexico has become such an exporting powerhouse. So in 2014, of every five cars assembled in Mexico, Mexicans bought only one, Canadians and Americans bought two, and the rest of them went to Latin America, Europe, or even Asia. It was not always that way, as they explained. So in the first half of the 20th century, Mexico essentially either imported finished cars or just imported the parts and then it assembled them. Uh, and then in the middle of the 20th century, the Mexican government said, hey, I kind of want these jobs for my own people. So they started introducing quotas on parts uh, and they banned imports of finished vehicles. The consequence of all that was that a lot of the smaller assemblers closed down. They were the ones relying on these imported parts and they just couldn't, couldn't handle the new market. You ended up with a concentration of production among the big companies, so Ford, Chrysler, Nissan and Volkswagen. They basically just sucked up all of the market. And it didn't really improve competitiveness. So essentially, the companies that were left faced higher costs and, and they produced lower quality cars than other places. And we shouldn't leave Canada out. So Canada used tariffs as protection in the mid 20th century to try to limit imports. But because it's a small market, it's only about a tenth of the size of the United States. 
those local automobile plants in Canada, even the American brands, GM and Ford, they just weren't able to achieve what economists call economies of scale. They couldn't get big enough by just supplying the Canadian market to lower their costs and actually get competitive. So relative to the same sorts of plants that were operating just across the border in the United States, they were much less efficient and paying lower wages to their workers. So the Canadian concern with opening up to the United States was the fear that their automobile industry would be crushed. They did eventually open up though, right? Uh, yep. Well, sort of. So in 1965, there was this thing called the Canada-US Auto Pact. It's been described as a mix of liberalization with protection. So the liberalization part was that Canada did cut its tariffs to the United States all the way to zero, but they didn't cut their tariffs toward imports of cars from Japan or Europe. The protection part was they had lots of other rules in place to protect the original automobile companies that were assembling cars in Canada to try to discriminate in their favor against the companies that hadn't been in the market at the time, so the Japanese companies and the Europeans. So there were lots of rules of origin requirements to make sure that plenty of the content was still Canadian. Oh, how I love rules of origin. Okay, so so rules of origin, just, just to explain, they're a kind of protection that's still used today. And, and what they are is rules within trade deals that specify the amount of content from the region. So they specify the minimum amount of regional content for something to pass tariff free. So if you want to get the zero tariffs, you have to source your parts from Canada, Mexico or the US. So what this does is it protects your regional parts makers. It protects the makers of the inputs into the thing that you're trying to trade. And it essentially restricts the car makers from taking advantage of global supply chains. So these rules of origin were part of the original 1965 deal. And that original deal also included a commitment by the automobile companies at the time to make additional investments of hundreds of millions of dollars into the Canadian market or into these Canadian plants. Economists have estimated that as a result of all this, over the next 20 years, the competitiveness of these Canadian automobile plants did improve. They got closer to their American counterparts, but they never became really equally competitive. Okay, so Canada was closed and then it opened up. And returning to my favorite example, Mexico, Mexico did the same. There was this earlier program designed to stimulate trade, Maquia Doras. It was basically designed to benefit foreign car companies. So you could import inputs from the United States tariff-free, but only on the condition that they would go back to the United States as part of these cars. And in these cases, only the Mexican value added was going to end up being taxed. So this Maquiladora program was really underused. The major implication being you needed wider economic conditions to be right for companies to be able to take advantage of these kinds of programs. But it was only when the Mexican peso collapsed in 1982 and it became super, super cheap to operate in Mexico that auto parts companies actually took advantage of the program. The Maquiladoras program started in 1965 but there were only 53 companies using it in 1980. By 1990, there were 187, and in 2006, there were 313. So it took a while to blossom, but when it did, it was, it was great. There was this really big policy shift in 1983 where, where the Mexican government said, OK, we're going to go for export promotion. That's our new thing. So in 1986, they joined the GATT, the World Trading System. Mexico had arrived. There were still limits on car production, so car companies could only import a certain amount depending on how much they exported. There was this kind of weird internal company-specific balance requirement. They also had local content requirements of 36%, so a car had to be at least 36% Mexican. And parts producers had to be Mexican-owned. There was no American company going to come in and own your parts maker. 
It could have been that companies needed strong signals that the Mexican government was committed to keeping these links open. Joining of the GATT, joining of the world trading system could have had a really big effect. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, the crowning jewel on all of this liberalization in the car market was really NAFTA. That was the big policy change that really locked all of this in. So NAFTA was a really big deal, although Mexico had been opening up to imports before then. And people think of NAFTA as exposing the American automobile sector to competition. But one of the biggest changes for Mexico was actually lowering its own import protection and introducing new competition. So they phased out these Mexican content requirements by 2004. Import duties fell from 20% in 1993 all the way down to zero by 2004. And by 1998, the parts plants could actually be owned by foreigners as well. Okay, so over these couple of decades, you have this huge shift towards this opening up to exports, this big liberalization. And they all probably need to be taken together. But sure, NAFTA is the, the crown of it all. It's kind of funny when, when thinking back how some people thought that not much would change with NAFTA. They thought that the Mexican production was so coddled and so you know uncompetitive because of all of those restrictions that it wouldn't actually be able to compete very well with America. Maybe production wouldn't really move. You had the U.S. Congress's Office of Technology Assessment just saying, yeah, we don't expect American production to move. It'll all pretty much remain the same. Here's Thomas Clear to describe what happened. Almost immediately, the, the, as the Mexican market opened up, the share of vehicles produced in Mexico that were produced for export rose quite dramatically from the mid-50% range to uh, about 80%, and it's stayed at that level ever since. In the meantime, the um, level of uh, production in Mexico uh, grew dramatically. In 1995, it was just under a million units, and 2017, closed out was just under 4 million units, so rather dramatic growth. In terms of how did the geography change, where these percentages, um, uh, the growth in Mexico, where that come out of? Uh, interestingly enough, the, 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 the locations inside the U.S. Uh, that were not as efficient um, uh, ended up losing out, and that's outside of what's called Auto Alley, which is a region between Detroit and then southwestern Ontario and all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, and locations outside of that, especially on the coasts, uh, ended up losing. The impact of this is difficult to identify precisely. And as Thomas writes in the paper, the export share of Mexican car production was already growing. So it went from 14% in 1985 to 53% by 1994, when NAFTA actually is first implemented. Though there was a big jump to 84% in 1995, the first year that NAFTA was in effect. But the big story is what's happened in the decades since. So the NAFTA deal gave these automobile companies the certainty they needed to help them develop their supply chains. Foreign car companies began to locate in Mexico, so Asian companies who wanted to source parts from North America rather than Asia, German companies that were drawn because of the tariff savings on their premium exports. Mexican share of North American car assembly increased from 6% in 1995 to 20% by 2016. Over that same time, the total number of cars assembled in the United States actually increased slightly, even though its share was falling. There's a really powerful narrative out there that Mexico did suck jobs away from America. And there is a recent paper by John McLaren and Shoshanik Hakobayan. They do find that some industries in some concentrated geographic areas of America were negatively impacted by essentially the tariff cuts, the, in, the increase in competition from Mexico. They don't have specific results broken out for the auto sector, 
But it is likely, given that Ortos was, relatively speaking, fairly protected, that some American workers and communities were hurt as the supply chains adjusted and people did relocate. Although clearly technology has played a big role as well. And that is just one narrow part of a much bigger answer of whether the changes were overall good for America. And there's lots of other interesting changes that are happening as well. As Thomas Clear was saying, an interesting new economic geography appears to have developed within these two countries as to where the automobile production was taking place. So Mexico has developed a cluster of car producers. Three quarters of the cars are basically produced now within 7% of the country's area in the middle of the country, just like it is in the United States. And if you look at the data, in the United States, the share of production in the middle of the country, what's called Auto Alley, this north-south corridor right in the middle, actually increased over this period while it was falling in other parts of the United States. This is sort of like a battle of the clusters. So it's not like you know, America's cluster lost while Mexico's cluster gained. What seems to have happened is that this new Mexican cluster grew to outcompete the producers that weren't in the American cluster. But also, you know, there's the wider point that they were all regionally integrated. This wasn't Mexico versus America. This was everyone working together in these really long supply chains. It's really difficult to attribute the rise of Mexico's automobile industry to just one trade deal. There's all sorts of policy changes happening at the same time alongside these huge economic changes as well. And NAFTA itself was just the first of a bunch of trade deals that Mexico went out and signed with other countries like Europe and Japan. Nowadays, Mexico has duty-free access to about half of all new vehicle sales taking place around the world. And those deals mean that Mexico is now relatively more diversified. Canada sells a higher fraction of its car exports to the North American market than does Mexico nowadays. Here's James Rubenstein with the last word. When NAFTA was implemented, most analysts, including U.S. government officials, did not expect Mexico's car industry to be able to compete with the U.S. because of the legacy of small, inefficient factories producing poor quality. However, Mexico's car factories are now fully competitive with those in the U.S. and the rest of the world. Also unexpected has been the level of investment in Mexico's infrastructure. When NAFTA was implemented, Mexico's roads, rail lines, and ports were problematic. Thanks to considerable infrastructure investment, Mexico now has two efficiently run Class 1 railways and upgraded seaports. 80 to 85 percent of the cars shipped to the U.S. from Mexico arrive by train. The remaining 15 to 20 percent are shipped by sea, thus bypassing the well-documented backup of trucks at the border. So, in summary, if you want to trade, I suppose you should be open, have good transport links, and be cheap. That is all for Trade Talks. So some acknowledgements. Thanks to Thomas Clear at the Chicago Fed, James Rubenstein at Miami University, John McLaren at the University of Virginia, Shushanak Hakobayan at the IMF, and Kristen Jizik at the Center for Automotive Research for sharing their research with us. I also want to plug a book that I read recently here, which is Janesville by Amy Goldstein. It is about a town that loses its GM plant and about the impact on people's lives of that happening. It's, it's an amazing piece of writing. And it's just down the street from where I went to graduate school in Wisconsin. Cool. Alrighty, you know the drill. Tell all your friends, your chums, your people you don't know. Trade Talks is great for listening in a car or while you're making car parts or maybe even assembling a car. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bowne. And we're at at trade underscore underscore talks. That's at trade underscore underscore talks. 
because one Trade Talks episode about NAFTA just wasn't enough. I'm not, I'm, you're not going to be in charge of this end bit ever again.